Hey, J. Crew, it's Mark here. The last episode a lot of you heard was the one live from Squirrel Hill. And we were so moved by the responses that we got from all of you. We were so pleased to have been able to be in Squirrel Hill with you and for you. But in order to accommodate that episode, we had to move around a lot of stuff. The first thing to say is that we had this great superstition-themed episode planned for the week of Halloween, which we had to move around for obvious reasons. So we're going to run that sometime in the near future. But then the other thing is we'd recorded a show at the Manhattan JCC, and that sort of got bumped. So what we've done for this week is pulled together a bit of a Franken episode. It's got all the constituent parts, but it's not quite a normal episode. You'll hear news of the Jews from the Mandel JCC, where we did a live show in Cleveland just this week. Then you'll hear a Jew of the Week interview with Gary Steingart, the novelist, who came to the tablet offices a couple weeks ago to talk about taking a Greyhound bus for weeks on end across the country to research his new novel, Lake Success. Our Gentile of the Week is Kevin Allison, who was our guest at the Manhattan JCC. So that's where that interview is from. And then we'll go back to the Cleveland show for our Mazel Tovs and all that stuff at the end. So, phew. We all hope things return to normal in America and on our show. In the meantime, have a good listen. I'm Estra Grant, and I'm so excited that you all are here with us in Cleveland. I've been waiting for you to be here since the first episode you ever broadcast. But sometimes things get a little out of hand, and people get very emotional, and words may fly out of their mouths, especially Liel. And so, just so we're all aware, you might hear some things that you don't normally hear, and this is your obscenity warning. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. We are live at the Mandel JCC in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week, as so many weeks, by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibovitz. Shalom, Cleveland. Shalom, Cleveland. By the way, is this the J or the JCC? <laughs> Either one. This has been controversial on our show lately, so... Oh, it's the Wait, can we do a hands? Can we do J? Raise your hand. And then JCC. Roughly even. It's really pretty even. I'm going to call it the JCC. Okay, I'm just going to... That's what I'm going to do. Um, before... <laughs> It's like, these are the things that keep me yes, up at night. Yes, you are. are my obsessions, are, your obsessions are like Zionism, Marx, the future of the world, and mine are, is, why are they saying Jay? <laughs> like, what sort of rebranding effort persuaded people what to What kind say of contraction Jay? is that? What kind of contraction is that? Um, before we go any further, I do want to say that, um, as you might have heard, it's been a rough week in News of the Jews, uh, or a rough 10 days. Um, and I wanted to say that... Um, some of you have heard our last episode. You know that Liel and Stephanie uh, did what what journalists do, which is they went to where the news was, and they went to they were in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh. What thirty six hours after uh, the shootings there, and and they did along with our producer Josh Cross and a lot of other behind the scenes people did the the real labor on putting out a really really beautiful episode. So I know they've been through a lot. I know that all of us have been through a lot, and um, and that hovers over over all of us. In the room, um, my rabbi sent out a message saying, kind of with the headline sent to the whole congregation, you know, what should we do? And he said, well, among other things, this week when you're in shul, you know, we have in the conservative prayer book, we have a prayer for peace. And he said, this week when you say the prayer for peace, try to mean it. You know, pay attention to the words. Um, so we've all dealt in our own ways, but one of the ways that Jews deal, I like to think, is by coming together in solidarity, being with each other, showing that we survive, and having some joy and having some fun. So we honor 
uh, the victims, we honor recent current events, and one way that we honor them is by having like the best live show in the history of Cleveland. In a town that has the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we're gonna show you what rock and roll is actually about. So, thank you. You know, it's interesting, we've had this, this show in the books for a while, but after everything that happened last week, I was thinking, I'm so excited to, to get here and to just be with you guys and to sort of be in person. You know, we record this episode a lot, these, this podcast a lot in a studio by ourselves, and it is really special for us, especially in light of everything that happened, to be in a room with you guys, old listeners, new listeners, uh, just a community. Absolutely. So thank you. Absolutely. 100%, as the Jews say. So the first thing I needed to do when I got to Cleveland was deal with something we had talked about on the show about a year and a half ago. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with Bagelgate. Something very painful to us An Orthodox Bagelgate. About a year and a half, I don't even, it was a, a Passover episode we did about, it was a bagel show. We thought, we thought how funny would that be before Passover to do a show about bagels? We had this idea that we would feature this like up and coming bagel company in Cleveland, the Cleveland Bagel Company, which was started by non-Jews. And we thought it was kind of funny because we think of bagels as so Jewish. People in Cleveland, sorry, Jews in Cleveland did not like that. No. They said, we have a very rich and varied Jewish food scene here and you did not capture it well. <laughs> for, for, a few for, weeks, <laughs> for a few weeks, we really understood how Salman Rushdie must have felt after he wrote that book. People were like, you don't dare cross the line into Ohio because we will find you, you bagel capitalists. You. We, actually, we, we thought, well, there goes a live show ever happening in Cleveland. <laughs> They'll never like, let they us will, in. They will never let us into Cleveland. So the first thing we did, we dropped our bags and Mark and I headed to Jack's Deli to meet some listeners. Ben Becker. Ben Becker. Hannah Gittleman. Hannah Gittleman, yes, yep. Thank you. There's Ben. Hi, and Ben. And we said, mea culpa, teach us, the error, like, teach us the error of our ways, feed us the Cleveland food, and we ate a lot of deli. We ate a lot of deli. And, and, then, I, and then we learned. We learned Bialy's. There's, there's the bagel shop with the PPE. Shoppy, yep. We've tried them all in our backstage, in our, in our green room. Yep. And so we just want to say we're sorry for not, for not <laughs> doing a show specifically des... Oh. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so some news of the Jews that doesn't have to do with us. Um, first of all, a couple quick bites, things that maybe don't, de de that don't deserve a full conversation, but, but, but must be mentioned. Um, actress, Jewish actress Zoe Kravitz is engaged to the partly Jewish Carl Glussman. Uh, Mazels. Mazels, do we care? Yeah. yeah, I think I after the Carly Kloss uh, conversion, conversion with a K, I think like every other celebrity wedding, like, eh. No, I think this is the year of the Jewish wedding. This is the year. Also in News of the Jews, uh, some of you who listen to our show remember the Sperminator, Ari Nagel, 43 years old, the one who has fathered 39 children as a sperm donor, occasionally passing sperm in a cup to women who meet him in a Target bathroom. <laughs> They don't meet in the Target bathroom, they meet outside the Target bathroom. The handoff is outside the Target bathroom? He goes into the bathroom. And don't make it and sound then comes cheap. back out. It's not only Target, sometimes it's Walmart or Burger King. <laughs> I mean, it's very classy. Coles, perhaps. That's right. Um, anyway, we have reached the end of this story, I think, because he is now in Israel endorsing a male fertility drug called Sperm XL in a new commercial in Israel. He has claimed that he did not get paid for the advertisement, but he did get a free bottle of Sperm XL, which, of course, is really bizarre because the whole point of his ad campaign is that he doesn't need sperm 
XL. <laughs> sure, you didn't get paid. I mean, all the budget went on coming up with a creative name for the product. Like, uh, Shlomo, what is the best name for this? Uh, how about, get this, it's a Sperm XL. <laughs> Everyone would want. Everyone wants. Have you watched the ad in, in Hebrew? I uh, would rather not. I actually, that. I did watch the ad. He's walking on the beach in Tel Aviv <laughs> and wearing a Mori t-shirt. Like, went on Mori, got the t-shirt, and then wore Mori it. Povich? The yeah, ad, yeah. And wore his Mori shirt on, on the <laughs> Your, your, your film industry needs some help over there in Israel. It's like, hi, I'm Ari Nagel. You may remember me from bathrooms such as McDonald's or Target. <laughs> I would uh, like this to be our last Ari Nagel. Let's, let's end it. I can't promise yeah. that. I don't, I can't, we can't make that promise. I just can't make that We're just promise. too enamored. Uh, you know, this is a one-man Jewish continuity machine. <laughs> this is just incredible. Leal like Hadassah should have awards for, for this guy. <laughs> Take us to some more important news of the Jews, Leal. In this past week, many things have gone on in the world. One of them, the one that is most important to my children, for example, was indeed All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. Let me tell you, the yeah. greatest American holiday ever. Ever. Uh, one main reason why I uh, seriously contemplated and indeed chose to move to this country was watching you know, American television shows with Halloween in them. I was like, there is something devoted to monster movies and candy, which are two of my main interests in life. Uh, and so this is a great holiday, but it's a holiday that kind of this year drove people a little bit out of their minds. Um, in, in the great state of Florida, uh, a woman named Susan Lamerton was uh, accosted by her, her neighborhood uh, group or whatever for putting a little Star of David on her front lawn because she, according to her, was Jewish and that was her way of expressing pride. And so once the neighborhood association told her she could not indeed have this display, she went up and put what on her lawn, would you say? Let's, let me read this <clears throat> from the Jewish tele, telegraphic agency. A Florida woman, usually we hear Florida man, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm actually happy to that it's Florida woman. A Florida, that's equality. A Florida woman who says she is Jewish has angered neighbors and received death threats over a holiday display in her yard that calls to mind Auschwitz. The display, erected last week ahead of Halloween, is full of skeletons, some saluting Hitler and others with concentration camp numbers on their arms and yellow stars. Oh. And in case you missed what the display was trying to do, there was a little sign that says Arbeit macht frei. So I wonder if she went to like the local Halloween store and be like, Excuse me, do you have, do you have Auschwitz? Buchenwald? No, nothing? Theresienstadt? Uh, Theresienstadt? No, don't have that. Uh, and, and so this was Susan Lamerton's Halloween. Not to be outdone. So this is a Jewish woman. Yeah, this doesn't make any it sense It makes no me. sense. What a strange you read, sense. When I read the story, I was like, oh, this is someone we hate. Right, this is an anti-Semite. This is bad. Right. But no, I mean... She was like trying to shame them. Into <laughs> if you won't respect my Judaism, I'll give you... Auschwitz. You think a Star of David is offensive? <laughs> How about the Holocaust? Which, uh, you, really, the ultimate point here is that f never move to Florida. No, you I mean, go really half is. the look, year my grandfather, and come back. Look, my, I know you are you're from Florida people. And I'm from people who then moved to who Florida. Moved to Flo I understand. First half the year and then full time. Look, I am from people <laughs> like my grandfather, Walter, who lived to the age of 95 on a diet entirely of corned beef and Hires root beer. And the secret, he said, was don't ever go to Florida. Because you, people go to Florida and then they just watch TV and have early bird specials to eat and die. And oh he, his God. belief was if you stay in Philadelphia, you keep shoveling snow and you live forever. And I just feel like the other you thing... shovel snow and corned beef. You shovel snow and corned beef. That's right. Just don't go to Florida. Before you, you badmouth the great state of Florida, you should know that not far away, 
in the other great state of Kentucky. Uh, a young man. That is so far. You're such a foreigner. That is like, Kentucky's nowhere near Florida. I said not too far away. Okay. And it's not too far away if you think about it. Uh, and also ideologically, very close. I'll so, tell so, you why. Okay. Because a, a wonderful man there uh, contemplating what uh, to dress himself and his adorable blonde little five-year-old boy. Oh, as, I don't like where this is um, going. Decided that he would be an SS officer and the little kid would go as, say it with me, all together, as Hitler. Oh, God. Which probably was the greatest ever conversation with the kid ever. It's like, Dad, can, can I go as like Dora the Explorer? No, you could go as Heinrich Himmler, the Destroyer. <laughs> like, it's such a... It's weird because his son, I feel like he should have done Hitler Youth. Like with a blonde boy, it's weird that he went Hitler. You think it would it would have been more realistic? At least then it would have respected the holiday a little bit. Is that what you're sort of? No, I just mean like Hitler wasn't blonde. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So we are here today with, how do you pronounce your last name? Steingart. Steingart. Yeah. Everyone here says it differently. Yeah, well, it's... Uh, That's what I said. Yeah, thank I, you for getting me, yeah. Maybe going back to a kind of Russian pronunciation of it, which is Steingart. Eh. Yeah. Here it became an ah. Yeah, Steingart. Okay, so we are we are here with Gary Steingart. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the memoir Little Failure and the novel's super sad true love story, Absurdistan, the Russian debutante's handbook. You've read one or all of his books, and you have loved one or all of them. Um, and his new book is Lake Success. Thanks for being here with us, great Gary. Great to be here. Um, so it's always great news, I think, when you have a new book out. Though I will say this one is not like a dystopian future. This is actually <laughs> the end the, of the 2016 election. It's the dystopian present. The dystopian or, present. Or really kind of almost dystopian historical fiction, given the, um, you know, the 2016 seems like it was 100 years ago. It does. And so I'm curious. So the book takes place at the sort of the tail end of the 2016 election um, and centers around a Jewish New Yorker. I'm going to let you explain all of that. But can you give us a timeline of how you write a book mm. that comes out in 2018 that's about 2016? Yeah, there was a... Uh, review in I think the Scotsman or one, some Scottish newspaper that called me and a couple of other writers that have managed to put out books uh, about 2016. Uh, they call us the the rapid response team or something like that, and, and it certainly feels like that. Um, yeah, with books like Super Sad, I've tried to focus on the future, but as a way, of course, to write about the present. That's what speculative fiction really is. Uh, you know, take current trends and take them to their utmost extreme. Um, but when I started writing. The first real draft of, of Lake Success um, was 2016, and I thought that Trump would be just the marginal part of the narrative because I thought he would—I didn't think he would win. So um, I, I thought, you know, the way if you do a film about the 1980s, you might put a Rubik's Cube on a table to sort of show, oh, this is the 80s, you know. So the Trump election would be sort of in the background as this kind of, well, it's 2016, folks, you know. But, of course, by uh, the end of the year, and I finished a book on 
December 21st, which is also the shortest day of the year, uh, which was kind of fitting. Uh, by that point, um, he began to elbow his way into the book the way he elbows his way into everything. So will you tell us a little bit about this book? Uh, yes, this is the first book that doesn't have a post-Soviet Jewish protagonist. It just has a Jewish protagonist, uh, Barry Cohen. He is a hedge fund guy. He runs a hedge fund. He's running it into the ground. Um, he is being pursued by the SEC. Uh, he is married to a, uh, a woman and the marriage is a disaster. He, they have an autistic kid. With, and that sort of, he's always on the, um, looking for perfection and everything because he grew up in a very imperfect uh, kind of um, childhood. His mother died when he was five. His dad is a schmuck. And so he, when all these things fall apart, his marriage, um, can't relate to his kid. Um, the SEC is after him. So he gets on a Greyhound bus searching for his uh, Princeton girlfriend in who now lives in El Paso, Texas. So it's kind of a road novel, but it uh, every other chapter, it goes back to Seema. That's his wife. And she's uh, her parents are from India and uh, her raising the kid in New York and then back to his journey across the country. So in the book, there's a writer who's working on a book about mm. finance types and he's trying to, to meet them and spend time with them. That's actually what you did, right? I spent four years with them, uh, which was really just beyond the call of duty. I mean, I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I deserve some kind like of a medal, a medal, or like a vest with a logo of a bank on it. Some Bitcoin, <laughs> something. You know, um, it was uh, it was tough. I mean, there were, I made some friends. There were a couple of nice people, but for the most part, it was just complete insanity and just uh, you know, it, it was people. I, I thought of you know most of the finance industry is a kind of tax on the rest of us. It just transfers money from us to them. They don't really provide any great social service. They, they don't. They're idea is to sort of skirt the free market. It's not in support of it. So it, it was a very disappointing kind of uh, four years. Uh, but hopefully, you know, I got a character out of it, which is sort of the writer's MO is you, you suffer. And then I also spent four months on the Greyhound, you know, which I actually prefer to hang it out with the, with the hedge fund folks. Um, and that was another, another form of suffering. Although having grown up in the Soviet Union, the Greyhound is not that bad. I mean, our buses are much sadder. This is sort of a, a portrait of America in a lot of ways. And I'm curious if, like you said, this is your first novel without a Soviet Jewish protagonist. Mm -hmm. Did your perspective as, you know, an immigrant here as, did that sort of color this sort of scathing in a lot of ways portrayal of the American dream? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or what's An American excess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so what I've, I think I've brought to previous books is, is this kind of feeling of being, uh, you know, being an immigrant, obviously, and observing from a, a kind of outsider's perspective. And the first summer of Trump was the first summer where I felt even, you know, I mean, I feel pretty American these days. I live half the year in the country. I drive a car for the first time in my life. I buy, you know, family-sized packets of Charmin. I feel there's no more Americanness I can attain. Um, but, you know, um, being out and about in America in this first summer of Trump, 2016, you know, there's a scene in the book where Barry gets on the hound and these um, white supremacists get on board and start talking about crucifying Muslims and Jews. And that happens. You know, they actually, they were there, you know, and, and, and Barry gets off and buys a New Testament coloring book to try to show that maybe he's not as Jewish as they think he is. And I almost did the same thing. So that happened to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and then, of course, uh, we were passing through Grambling State University, a traditionally, historically African-American college, and they were talking about how, you know, well, they got their colleges and one day we'll have ours, you know, so all that stuff in the book. Um, actually happened. And, you know, it's not that these people don't exist. I mean, and have had these ideas for, you know, centuries. It's a part of the, I think, American, that sort of racism and anti-Semitism is a 
part of America, but it was, I think, the first summer where people could get up and talk about it loudly and quote Breitbart, which they did, and, and you know, on a bus where primarily people were, were people of color. And um, so it was the summer where you could get up and first declare uh, verbally, um, you know, that, that, that you hated Jews, Muslims, blacks, etc. And we've sort of, in the last couple of weeks, have seen, you know, the fruition of all that come to so it's in, logical conclusion in a way. Yeah. And in that scene, Gary said, get up, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, Gary. It's confusing. Wow. Yeah, my um, shrink is like, so you just switched the letter? That's all you did? <laughs> no, you added a letter. You added an R. And an R. I did add an R. That's <laughs> true. That's So Barry, Barry Cohen, um, he says in response to the white supremacists, he's like, no, I'm Greek. Yeah. And so there's a way in which his Judaism functions in kind of a fascinating way here. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember, trying to think back to the Russian debutante's handbook, my first book. I was so stoned when I wrote that, it's so hard to remember what I said. But I think there was some line where Vladimir Gershkin, who is the main protagonist of that, is also confronted by someone, and he says he's Armenian or something. Like, there's some instance of him, but he's in Eastern Europe at the time, you know, which is sort of the hotbed of anti-Semitism. And he has to use that as an excuse not to get killed. But what's frightening is that four books down the line, you know, Barry Cohen is using that in America here. He's, he's using some kind of, you know, fellow furry, you know, part of the world kind of character to, to get out of being, uh, you know, assaulted. Wow, that's so depressing that even today, that's we're still doing that. Yeah, and this was in 2016, just to remind you, this is before he was elected and before, this was the first sort of taste that I got where, of, of where things were going. And when I got on The Hound in New York in June, you know, I really thought that she was going to win, Hillary's going to win. And then when I got off The Hound in September, I was, you know, pricing Toronto real estate because it, it felt so, well, Montreal is my preferred Canadian refuge. But, you know, it, it, those four months really made a huge difference, I think, in, in the way I saw things. And people along the, the route just kept saying, you're wrong. She's going to lose Pennsylvania. And I was like, what are you talking about? Look at 538, you know. And, um, That's what Barry says also in the book, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the book is, as, as you've been getting to, it's really an act of journalism more than anything. It was just a, me taking a snapshot of, of, of the American temperament at the period in time. I'm so curious because the time of this book is actually quite different, right, from yeah. where we are now. Things I think yeah. would, I would argue, have gotten much, much worse sure. for, for minorities, for Jews in particular. Um, I'm, cu I'm wondering how it feels for you as someone who fled with your family the Soviet Union to sort of oh. be in this. No, it's terrible. It's, um, you know, it brings to mind this question of my parents didn't get everything right, but they did get one thing right. They knew when to leave, you know, and that's sort of the perennial kind of question, I think, for, for Jews and for other groups around the world that have, that have been sort of shunted around. We mentioned Armenians earlier. Um, when do you leave? When do you know that things are about to turn very ugly? And, uh, you know, this was the first manifestation of it. Well, the first two manifestations of it over the last two weeks. But um, you know, you're always got to keep your, uh, your... I mean, why people ask, why do you write books that are so about now? And I think that that's sort of the instinct that I've always had is, you know, what's happening now? Uh, you can look at history, you can guess the future, but... Uh, Got to keep your eyes wide open. What is the Russian-Jewish affinity for Trump? Because that, that exists, right? Sure, of course it exists. Yeah, there's a couple of answers to that. I mean, one is, you know, um, and, and this exists among certain American Jews, native-born American Jews as well, the perception that he's good for Israel. He moved the embassy. So, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and the other part, I think, is is the love of a strong man. Um, you know, this, this perception that we always have. Many Soviet Jews came in, in the late 70s, early 80s. That was a big sort of, we emigrated in 79. There was this perception that Jimmy Carter was weak, Ronald Reagan was strong, and strong in a way, you know, in, in curtailing communism. 
and also strong for Israel. I mean, the whole schmear of, of, of stuff. And I think that was a, a, a big part of it. And, you know, like any post-communist group, uh, look at Cuban Americans, for example, there is always a, a strong bias for Republicans. There's a kind of mind-bending element to this because, you know, the, the Putin government is in so many ways a successor to the Soviet regime. He's an ex-KGB officer who's pretty much a KGB officer today, you know. And the KGB was always notoriously anti-Semitic and did horrible things to Jews. So when you look at it, you know, in any kind of logical way, there's a, there's a kind of huge fallacy here. I mean, and to be honest, you know, a lot of the anti-Muslim and the, the, the racist things that you hear from someone like Trump sits very well with, with this conservative group. And when we were growing up, you know, we were not wealthy. Most Soviet Jews came without, without any money, obviously. Many did not get the kind of jobs that they had back in the Soviet Union. And the Republican Party said very clearly, you know, I, even then, the sense was the Republican Party was saying with welfare queens, with Willie Horton, what they were saying is, you're white. And that's, so if you think you're at the very bottom of the heap, you're not. Someone is beneath you. It's a horrifying message, but it's a message, I think, that, that really resonated. And, uh, and today, many Soviet Jews are not pro-Soviet Jews, post-Russian Jews, whatever they are now, are, are also not very wealthy um, and not as integrated into the society. And I think someone like Trump really speaks their language. And that's very sad to say, obviously, as someone who comes from that world. Damn. And in the light of what happened in Pittsburgh and that the shooter was actually motivated by hatred for Hyas, which is yeah. so insane to me because Hyas has always been something that Jews have have treasured and, you know, have known about forever. It's, you know, with Sure. I mean, I, I think Hayes intersects with the very best of Jewish thought, Jewish responsibility, um, Jewish intersection with the rest of the world. You know, they resettled me, uh, they resettled my family, they resettled a great deal of the people I know. Uh, they resettled people I, I've met who uh, were not Soviet Jews. You know, um, it's an incredible mission. And of course, uh, that's what they would go for. I mean, it, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. It's, uh, the, the demonization of, of Hayes uh, on the far right makes perfect sense. It's a Jewish organization, but it's committed to the idea of, of a world that's driven, by, that's full of migration, uh, that's full of people escaping death. I mean, you know, you're talking about Guatemalans, Hondurans, etc., trying to get to America. They're not doing it, you know, they're not just doing it for fun. Um, they're not doing it to, to, to shop, uh, you know, in El Paso. Their, their lives are at stake the way our lives were at stake. So um, this target makes perfect sense for people who have so little going on for them and, and, and who want to, um, whose target is, are people of, who are vulnerable. And, uh, and that's the mandate, I think, of Hyas is to protect the vulnerable. And you worked at a resettlement organization, right? I did. Not, not very well. I wasn't a great office worker. And I think I was gently pushed out of every office job I've ever had. Um, uh, but it was Niana, New York Association for New Americans, fun place. And my mom worked for Hyas for many years. And so I'm curious when I'm reading about Barry Cohen, this Jewish guy who's not super in touch with his Jewish identity. His wife, his Indian wife, actually teaches him what tikkun olam yeah. is because she's dated a bunch of Jewish guys. Right, right. Is there? Yeah. Yeah, which, which I found interesting, you know, and, and I mean, when I was on the dating scene, there were, there were always these, these women who weren't Jewish, who uh, knew a lot about Judaism just by dint of dating like 10 Jewish guys in a row, of which I would probably be the last one after me to be like, you know what, I'm, I, I may go back to... To a different kind of boyfriend now. I think I've done it. I love that. It's like the J-date osmosis. You just like yeah. learn more. <laughs> you're in J-points and then you're like, so okay, I'm done. Is there an indictment of the of the American Jew here who values money? Like he's not, not that he's not connected to his Judaism, his Judaism that is, is sort of irrelevant almost here, but his his quest for, for money, for, you know, bettering himself, his, 
his quest for money has taken him, you know, from mm-hmm. bettering himself, from being the pool guy's son, mm-hmm. to being this, like, master of the universe. Well, I don't want to say that, you know, it's his lack of Jewish identity that makes him the jerk that he is. Um, it, it That could be one component of not knowing anything about himself. Uh, of growing up in difficult circumstances, like I said, his, well, his mom died when he was young, his father treated him terribly. It, it's trying to figure out who you are and you know, being understanding that you are Jewish in some way could be a part of that. It doesn't have to be in a religious sense, but maybe in a cultural sense. Um, uh, but I think his idea is that he wants to be, that he is, um, he wants to be a master of the universe. And for him, that means being the friendliest guy in the street. And for him, that means, you know, reading Fitzgerald to death and, and Hemingway and trying to capture that ethos. And then, you know, he names his fund, this side of capital, like the side of paradise, Fitzgerald's first book. And so there's a kind of almost proto-waspiness, uh, this idea that I will become American by becoming as waspy as I can be. And I'm not saying that he should, you know, rekindle his, Jude- his connection with Judaism. I'm just saying that there's this idea of, I- I'm basically a vacuum and I'm going to chase something that I believe sounds American enough. Interestingly enough, you know, a lot of kids, for example, in places like China who want to take the TOEFL, et cetera, study the Great Gatsby as this great work of sort of understanding American assimilation. I- I'm not even dissing the Great Gatsby. I think it's a lovely work. But there's this idea, this kind of Ralph Lauren idea of, well, I'm going to, this is how you assimilate. And, and I think Barry, and especially Barry's generation, because he's 40s, right? And mid 40s uh, at this point. So he is uh, of that generation that still feels this incredible need to assimilate. It's funny to me because Ralph Lauren, all these people who created this like prototypical oh, yeah. wasp style, oh, yeah. preppy style, are, we're all just Jewish, like schmata guys. Sure. And, and uh, you know, the, the greatest wasp artifact of the last decade, Mad Men, was, of course, a. Matt Wiener production. So, um, you know, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a fascination with, with um, the, uh, you know, the, the ruling class in a sense, um, even as that ruling class has made room for others. So this book is full of just like beautiful sentences and just such sharp observations about like the nuances of the very, very wealthy in New York. But I want to talk about dogs. Sure. Because you have an amazing line. Um, Barry grew up with this is a quote, a dog who died from the melancholy of being a working class Jewish pet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, I had fun writing that one. Yeah. <laughs> so what do dog what do what are dogs and Jews? Like what what's the relationship? I'm in love with dachshunds and I am the part owner of a dachshund. And a dachshund is a, a German dog to begin with. I think it's badger dog, I think. Dachshund. You could be wrong, but we can Look at the intertube for that. Um, but I, I know that the Germans initially bred this dog to um, pursue badgers. As, as And um, I fell in love with them. And I became, uh, I'm a part owner of one. Um, I own about 40% of, of a dachshund. Uh, my assistant takes care of the other 60%. I primarily own the, you know, the snouts and the, and the <laughs> beautiful chocolatey eyes. Uh, and a, a dachshund makes an appearance in Lake Success. And I believe in other works as well. And I, my love affair with dachshunds, weirdly enough, I mean, it's sort of on topic, became began in Squirrel Hill in, uh, in, in part of Pittsburgh, where my um, one of my college roommates, uh, who now works for Politico, um, he his family owned two dachshunds, and and uh, I went to the Oberlin Institute for Exceptional Individuals, and you know Oberlin is a tough place to spend four years because it's in it's in Ohio, it's it's Oberlin, so we would make this very long trip to Pittsburgh to get away from it all, you know, to see the bright lights, big city of Pittsburgh. Um, and he had a lovely house in Squirrel Hill, and there were these two dachshunds, and and they were just the sweetest, sweetest animals I've ever met. There was something so melanc- melancholy about those, the eyes, the snouts, um, the dachshund is um, 
not a well-designed dog. As we know, it's a sausage dog. It's incredibly long. This creates all sorts of Ashkenazi problems for it down the line. Uh, back aches are a, a giant feature, and, and you know, lifespan is curtailed by, by oh, my back. You know, so I, I just love that dog. Squirrel Hill is such a beautiful yeah. place. It's really one of the most beautiful neighborhoods ever, and just one of these. Uh, I know Michael Shabon has a connection to it. It's uh, it's really one of these sort of quintessential uh, neighborhoods in Pittsburgh in general. You know, it was I think when I visited it from from college, it was sort of coming off its you know coal world and becoming biotech and whatever it is now. But it's a really it's a really great city on many levels. And there's something there about the Jewish community that I've not actually seen elsewhere, um, which is that they all like each other hmm. and they all belong to different cities. Like there's no like this is the conservative temple and I would never set mm. foot in the reform unless mm. I had a bar mitzvah to go to. That's interesting. Yeah, there are people who said that they go to different services at different places because they mm. like one rabbi. I mean, have you? I've never heard of anything never heard like of that. that. Wow, I wonder what, what drives people to connect to others. I think actually what it is, having spent a few days there, is it feels like a small town. Oh yeah, yeah, very much so. But it's in a cosmo, you know, it's in a, these people are not, you know, mm-hmm, back, mm-hmm. like these are mm-hmm. cosmopolitans, sophisticated people oh. with culture and mm-hmm. all these things that they're at the ready. But it also functions as like a very much like a shtetl where everyone knows each other's business. Everyone checks in. And I think that's what makes this mm. both so horrific, yeah. but also something that the community is is not prepared for, but is is able to to handle because mm-hmm. they are so close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting analysis. I mean, how many like 50,000 Jews, I think, in the greater Pittsburgh area? I think I read that somewhere. It seems like a lot for such a small town, right? Yeah. And they're all sort of stuck on top of each other in Squirrel mm-hmm. Hill. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is it is a... It is a real shtetl, as you said. Yeah, the, one of the, the Jewish communities that I always was very interested in was uh, was the one in Montreal, uh, in reading Mordecai Richler, of whom I'm a, a big fan, um, and the way that sort of functioned throughout the years, uh, for good and for bad. And I think it left the most important culinary imprint, Jewish culinary imprint on North America. Um, the bagel there is, is spectacular and superior to anything. And um, and there was a kind of, yeah, interesting infrastructure, you know, Moishe's Steakhouse and Schwartz's and all these things. I mean, they exist, obviously, we have Katz's and stuff like that, but there was a feeling that they were sort of imprinted on this part of Playa the Plateau, which is now this incredibly hipster area. Um, to me, that's uh, the most interesting sort of Jewish community I've encountered in, in North America. So you're, you're Team Montreal Bagel. I am a Team Montreal Bagel person. I just did a reading in Montreal and got in deep trouble during the reading where uh, I was asked the question of, you know, Fairmont or St. Viator. Wow. And I said, Fairmont by a hair, you know, and this immediately upset, you know, more than half of the audience. That was like a, that was a bad question, though, because you were going to get in trouble no matter what. You are going to get in trouble no matter what. I think there was more of a Viator presence uh, that, that day. And, and I, you know, I can't, I usually judge the wins pretty well, but I, I missed this opportunity to connect. With Can you explain the Viator type versus the Fairmont type? I, I really, to me, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, what makes them so great, both of them is, is just the... Um, the size of the bagel, mm-hmm. the fact that it's not this giant doughy, you know, that is more like a hockey puck, the use of honey water. Um, I think people like the fact that, um, well, I, I, in, uh, in favor of St. Peter, I will say that they also have a full cafe where mm-hmm. you can, so, you know, you buy the bagel at Fairmont and you have to get your own locks and that's a whole thing. You know? yeah. Whereas there, there's a cafe, <laughs> they slap it on you. What I would like is, is for there to be a sturgeon place nearby so that you can combine that bagel with a sturgeon. A slice of sturgeon in that in one of those bagels, I, I think, would be the end. I, it's a better vehicle. It's so much smaller. Well, that's it. it no bagel should be this large. It should be a, a delicious delivery system for the fish inside. So are bagels Jewish at all anymore? Yeah, sort of, you know, I guess. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's our greatest culinary contribution. You know, we don't have green curry or something that important. And a lot of the foods that we came from are the foods of suffering, you know. 
kishkas. What the hell is that, right? Um, we're sort of you know haggis-based kind of people, so the bagel is a is an improvement. It's a bagel is also more of a celebration of life and everything, considering where we eat it. Yeah, there were these crunchy mini bagels, uh, bubliki, I think they're called in Russia, that, that I really enjoyed getting a sack of them and just chewing. Not, not chewing, you kind of crackle through them. <laughs> um, Gary Steingart, thank you so much for being with us. Lake Success, you should, you can and should get it at all retailers, small and local mm-hmm. and big and conglomerate mm-hmm. uh, alike. Thank you for being here with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right. Our Gentile tonight is comedian Kevin Allison. He was a member of the sketch comedy troupe The State. And he is the, yeah, and he is the creator and host of the podcast Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they would share. Which has <laughs> 700 million downloads yeah. every moment. Whoa, whoa. This is the club Hello. portion. Hello to you. Kevin, you big Gentile, you, you big goy. What's up, man? <laughs> Very good. That's Thank love you. from us. That's how we do love here. <laughs> is this your first turn as a Gentile of the Week, or have you been a Gentile of the Week? Well, you know, I, I grew up in comedy, so you know, I, I'm I'm very often the only Gentile right. in the room. <laughs> this be is like, Shalom, I'm Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's awkward because our first question for you actually is: So you're a Gentile in comedy? What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the the state, my sketch comedy group, it, it, it was. It was so fun. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and very, very Roman Catholic, uh, and very Republican, very, you know, white bread. And when I got to NYU, it was really, I, I was like, <laughs> I, I, it was so weird because I, I, I was like, well, of course I consciously knew there were people who aren't Catholic, but man, there really are people who aren't Catholic. 
And my mother was very disturbed because my freshman year at NYU, I was, you have to choose a minor as well. The, my major was film, but I was like, I'm going to take a class in Judaism and Buddhism and Hinduism and, uh, you know, uh, Islam. And my mother was like, no, you are not. <laughs> so when that letter, when that thick envelope arrived from NYU, was your mother like, I, I don't know about that. I, and she was so upset that I did switch my minor to English. <laughs> We wait, so I'm love, assuming. By the way, I'm sorry. I love that the world in which switching your minor to English is the choice that, that <laughs> really makes made. your mother happy. <laughs> right. Did she, H. Lawrence yeah. was much safer material. It, <laughs> <laughs> your mother hadn't read much D. H. Lawrence, right. had she? Is, did your mother? Is it just because she didn't want to? Was Catholicism important enough to you that she didn't want to you to lose yeah, your Catholicism to the big city? She was scared that I would be exposed to all these new ideas. And one of the first things I did. Uh, it was uh, one. I, I did a documentary at the end of my freshman year, where I wrote down all of these very, very personal questions about Jesus, and walked around New York City and knocked on doors and asked people. And they were things like, "If Jesus played a sport, uh, which one do you think he would prefer? Or what kind of joke would La Jesus lacrosse. like? You know, yeah, was, someone said ha hang gliding." <laughs> But no, I met with all kinds of people to like get some real reactions. And, and it was really interesting because it was clear that New York City was making me question all this, you know, mythos that I had grown up with and never really questioned all that much. Hmm. And is that how you decided to be a comedian? <laughs> like, <that is> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, when what's, I was, the, what's the career path into that? I mean, well, when I was a freshman at, at NYU, I came to study film. But, you know, I was also a very sensitive gay man. And I really recognized quite quickly, you know, we had a, a Russian uh, uh, film teacher in our freshman year who a young woman showed her movie and he said, yes, uh, you should stay working in the kitchen. I was like, oh, okay. That's funny. <laughs> I see how the movie business works and film school works. It's very uh, straight male bullying. You know, it was a boys club. And so I became very frightened until I met a group of people who were starting a sketch comedy group. And that was my group, The State. We started uh, right in my freshman year at NYU. And we became so obsessed with our, our teamwork, you know, how much fun we were having together, that we decided, oh my gosh, we need to try to create a career together after we graduate. And we did. We were on MTV within a year of having graduated. One of the things that Taffy writes about in her piece with, about Melissa McCarthy is um, that it's hard times for comedy because everyone feels if you're not being topical and relevant, you're somehow being anti-topical or you're skirting the issues that everyone wants to talk about and that comedies actually aren't – big budget comedies aren't doing so well right now. Um, and that a lot of material's off limits and a lot of it's heavily politicized. Are you feeling that's true? I mean, or is it that we all have to just go to podcasts to get the unvarnished good stuff? Well, one of the great things about podcasts is that people can feel free. They don't have to talk in sound bites and they don't have to stick to specific genres. And storytelling, I created my show Risk 
because, you know, by 2009, when I was about to turn 40, I was getting a little tired and frustrated with having to fit into that one laugh per eight seconds structure. I wanted to be able to get up on stage and speak sometimes in a way that made people emotional, in a way that made people, you know, scared. You know, I wanted to go all over. So I realized that true storytelling was the place to go for that. So on risk, I, I, I just let people know, look, Anyone is free to say anything here, and that includes me, the host, and I've decided to start this week's episode saying, hey, you know what? We shouldn't be putting kids in concentration camps. You know what I mean? Like, I feel free to say whatever I want on the show, too, and every now and then, if I'm feeling like, wow, things are really fucked up right now, I'll just go ahead and say it and, you know, put some narrative around it about how my day is going and that sort of thing. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, it is definitely very, very taxing, I think, for everyone who has to speak publicly to get up in front of an audience on a regular basis and kind of like... Uh, uh, the nice thing about Risk is... People can talk very emotionally about issues that are very much in the news today, but they can address them in the ways that they're, that they're happening inside their own families or their own relationships or even just their own, you know, minds as they're going through their day. So it's, it's, it's a great way. On risk, a person can talk for 10, 20 minutes, even an hour telling a story where you feel you're, re you're just much more connected and feel like there's more of a flow than, say, on Twitter, which is just a waterfall of anxiety. Mm. Yeah. That was the original tagline <laughs> for, for the service. So I, I want to get back to risk in a second. But before that, before you found the success again with, you know, 7 million people listening at every given moment, uh, you've, you've done as, as a lot of, you know, struggling actors and, and uh, comedians and podcast hosts, sometimes I hear have done, uh, you've done a lot of jobs, uh, odds and ends here and then. Uh, what, what kind of, tell us about that life. Whew. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, uh, you've catered events with Donald Trump. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I want, you know, I, the state was on MTV for uh, a few years, and then then we tried to switch to CBS, and Les Moonves was being hired that week, and he said, oh, I'm too busy, I'm not interested in a bunch of kids who do sketch comedy, fire them immediately. So our career was just suddenly over. Well, these past few months has been, have been hard for you, I imagine. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so I, sw I spent 12 years after the state broke up really not knowing what to do with myself. So the first thing I did was cater waitering. Uh, you know, I was pouring champagne at the Grammys while uh, I was in reruns on TV. <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin walks in to this room where I'm pouring champagne and Aretha Franklin walks in at the same time and Sarah McLaughlin's like, oh my God, Aretha, uh, can I get you some champagne? She walks up to my bar. She looks at me and she says, Sarah McLaughlin says, oh my God, what are you doing here? <laughs> and Aretha says, huh? And, and, and she said, oh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha went, mm-hmm. What would have been really funny is if it turned out Aretha was the state fan. And she turned to Sarah McLaughlin like, he's good. He's the good one. She could have given me my career Joel back. Joel Latrulio is something, but this guy, <laughs> this guy's the good one. 
Yeah, so I did a lot of things. But actually, my career in storytelling started because Michael Ian Black, who had been a member of the state, was like, you've had such an insanely ridiculous life. Would you stop getting up on stage playing crazy characters and start telling us your own true stories? I said, oh, that feels too risky. He's like, yeah, there's a word. That's the idea. Go with risky. So I went back to New York and I was like, well, I could talk about, you know, the most controversial job I've ever done, which is male prostitute. <laughs> so that was the very first. I feel in 2018, that is not the most controversial no. job you could have. No, well, it wasn't the worst job I've ever had either. <laughs> it's true what they say, that waiting tables is worse. Um, but yeah, no, th so that was my first foray into getting up in, in front of an audience and just like being like, well, I don't care what you think about this. I'm just going to be honest with you and found that that really works. Yeah. Can I go back to Jesus for a second? Um, or I guess come to Jesus is what it's called. Um, he was like a good storyteller, right? Yeah, I think. Was he the original storyteller? Not only that. There were some people who told stories before. Oh, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephanie. But he was really into it. He, he like really took like it public. Like an art form. Like well, the podcasting, he really did it on yeah, the mountain. He pioneered it, yeah. yeah. What I think is really interesting if you look at the way that those, that the, the gospels are written is that he has a real sense of drama. He's not only a storyteller, but he's like, okay, I'm going to walk in here when everyone's gathered. Or, oh, they're stoning someone. It, here's my turn to like make a big show. Yeah, yeah. He had a sense of theater as well, I think. Yeah. Um, but then again, he might not have existed. That was my very favorite. My very favorite response. I got this all the time in my documentary about Jesus. I, people would say, I think he was a really, really good guy if he existed. I thought that was a very interesting way that the mind can hold on to two ideas at the same time. Did um, So you've been doing, how many episodes of Risk have there been now at this point? Uh, well, over, well over 400 at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what is the kind of thing, I mean, there must be a certain, a few cliches at this point where you're like, don't tell us about your loss of virginity or don't tell us about, I mean, are there a few that have lapsed into cliche where you don't want to hear them? And then is there one or two that just blew your mind with their, you couldn't, your jaw dropped after all this time, you were still shockable. So risk, the people, the listeners are the main contributors. The listeners hear these stories and they're incredibly therapeutic and incredibly cathartic because they're uncensored. You can't share these kinds of stories on national public radio. They're the kinds of stories you would share with your therapist usually. And so we'll run a story about, say, for example, child molestation, and then all of a sudden there will be a flood of stories about child molestation pitched to us. And so that can be very psychologically draining on me when, when we go through, you know, the Me Too uh, period has been very like, oh my God, you know, uh, to, to go through all those experiences that people are sharing. Um, so yeah, there, I, I would say that one, like I'm gay and, and, and it, like, I kind of like was the Pied Piper on the show by sharing very gay, kinky, uh, polyamorous sort of stories that are usually pretty funny and free spirited on the show. I kind of like led the way of, oh, you can talk about anything here. 
I think that the stories of people who were raised in very Christian households <laughs> and were gay and, you know, like had to deal with coming out and being completely shunned and everything like, uh, you know, th there's so many of those that it does get a little like, well, it, it, it feels inhuman to say, but I feel like, okay, so is there a twist? <laughs> does your mother listen to the show? Dear God. Uh, no, my and, and Risk, we just came out with a book, too, of some of our favorite stories. Uh, it's called Risk. And uh, I told my mom, you're not allowed to read. I, I said, please don't get the book. And I was amazed that, that she agreed to that. You know, there's a certain level of... Uh, oh, yes, maybe we don't want to know. <laughs> so, yeah, no, like that, I, I often talk about the fact that as much as I absolutely love my parents and as, as supportive as my parents always was of my pursuing my dreams, um, there's definitely a lot of sexual shame that I was raised at. And, you know, it's interesting. There, there was a book called Once a Catholic, and it's interviews with prominent former Catholics. And one of them was George Carlin. And he said, oh, my gosh, I am so grateful that I was raised Catholic because I grew up in a very liberal Democratic family. And if I hadn't had those nuns and priests to rebel against, I wouldn't have developed the voice that I have. And that's exactly how I feel about my mother's sexual shaming. <laughs> that Risk My Podcast is kind of kind of a, a rebellion against that archetypal voice in my head of don't talk about sex, don't do sex, don't, you know, no, no, no sex. But uh, isn't that like also a double-edged sword? Because like, look, I, I'm obsessed with your podcast. Ours starts with, you know, sponsorship with Harry's Razors. Yours starts with buy this dildo and get us free sex swing, which I always <laughs> find amazing because like if we had that, I'd be like, whoa. Um, <laughs> Aren't Our you sex ever... swing would have to be kosher. That's correct. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it no. will not swing between Sunday and Friday. And the knots couldn't Friday be tied on Shabbos. Right. Uh, do you ever feel like there might be a tipping point in which the culture would sort of like forge so strongly in, in this direction in which all these taboos and all these shaming will simply cease to exist and then podcasts like Risks would be like, oh, okay, that's just another man talking about, you know, kink camp. I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned the musical Cabaret before. I feel like, I feel like Risk is kind of like the musical Cabaret right now, you know, like, like when people share, especially about kinky things or about, you know, like, uh, you know, screw this to the repressive, you know, uh, uh, um, political uh, environment we're in, I kind of feel like, no, yes, it, it's very true. I mean, we have had stories on risk about extremely taboo stuff, like even um, poop eating and um, uh, race play <laughs> is a, um, uh, race play is where people, there's a dominant and a submissive, they're role playing and they're actually using racial tension in the role playing that they're doing we've had a very profound story about that so yeah there there are, we've definitely like oh, at, at times we definitely do go too far for some listeners but no i don't i don't 
One of the keys is that the story has to have a sense of compassion and is told from the top of your intelligence. You can't come, like, people will sometimes be like, oh, you can talk about any sex here. Well, you know, I once dated this bitch who was, you know, who was I hate her, and yada, and I'm like, no, 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 no. The, the, you, you have to, when you come to risk, tell a story where you're trying to be as empathetic toward the other characters in the story and you're you're being as self-critical as you can about yourself in the story as well. So we definitely do not, we, we, we don't accept most of what is pitched to us and we don't even run about 60% of what we work with, you know. So yeah, there is a, a process of elimination there. But every now and then someone comes through and the audience will be like, that person sounded like a narcissistic sociopath to me <laughs> and I'll listen again and I'll be like huh maybe I missed that maybe that person maybe that was not the truth at all would you never get mad with me so so I'm, I'm thinking and I think about this a lot when I listen to you I think if that person actually had to struggle with with the sexual shame with the coming out with all these tensions and here's a new generation of people who just get to come and talk to you because you've already walked in this path are you ever like hey buddy you know I I had to give it 20 years for you to be able to talk. Well, I've, I've always felt that way because I realized I was gay from the beginning of consciousness. And a lot of people don't believe that. And I'm like, okay, don't believe it. But my first thought was I love boys' butts, you know. <laughs> um, so I grew – and in Cincinnati itself is a very sexual repressive town. There was the Maplethorpe trial, the Larry Flint trial, you know, hair and equus You know it's where they train reform rabbis, right, is in Cincinnati? Oh, do they? Did you know that? No, I did oh, not yeah, know that. Oh, yeah, that's like a major rabbinic seminary oh, is in that's Cincinnati. that's amazing. Next time you're home, you should yeah. drop by. You could yeah. do a risk, a live show there. <laughs> For Christmas. Um, but wait. What, They're what, open what, what, then. What was I just saying? Oh, yes. So I grew up kind of thinking I was the only male in the world who liked other males. And that is actually the reason that I ended up going to NYU. I told my parents, oh, it's for film school. But it was really because I had seen in Time magazine that you can have gay sex in New York City. Um, <laughs> it was for gay school, basically. Yeah, so I... I, I, I love the Time magazine was where you had that <laughs> knowledge imparted on you. <laughs> So, so I grew up feeling so very alone and being so hyper aware of the irony of how people were talking and, you know, wincing every time I heard the slurs about gays. And once you get to high school, it's once every five minutes you're hearing them. Uh, so I grew up just feeling incredibly alone about all that. And once I got to college and everyone was like, oh, we're starting gay groups and everything. And everyone's, everyone else started coming out of the closet. I was like, oh, you guys. No, I'm the gay guy. Who the hell are you newcomers? So I've always felt that weird, that, that weird tension around You're like that. a hipster gay. Yeah. Like, you did it first. Right, right, right. So Samantha B. told a really good story on your show on one of the all-star editions. Um, it wasn't about sex or anything anything scandalous it was about just like a boyfriend she had in high school and how she sort of was like a, a bad kid in high school yeah and she said something at the beginning which is you know I know I'm gonna have to tell my kids this story someday and it you know it's it's a story you just put, it's it's the kind of thing that made me think oh this is a, a podcast that's sort of available online you know available in perpetuity it's not like getting up on stage one night at a storytelling event and I'm wondering how that changes 
the calculus of this, knowing that these stories live and, you know, someone's parent or someone's, you know, employer could find them. The number one reason that people fret about telling stories on risk is family members. Um, you know, so a man once told the story of how he accidentally Ate or poop. not not accidentally, but no, no, it was not one of the poop stories. That that is a whole genre. I'm just back on, on that the show. one. Sorry. Uh, no, that he kind of sort of killed a person once, and <laughs> and it was it was a it was an incredible story. You know, one of one of the, one of the things I love about stories, especially risk stories, is there's tons of mixed emotions and you know, times when the storyteller disagrees with him or herself and stuff like that. So it was filled with all that kind of you know ambivalence and and. Uh, working your way through it. Uh, and the night before the show, it was in Chicago. We were doing the show in Chicago. He said, I got a call from him. He said, I can't do it. Uh, I said, why? And I heard his wife say, tell him you were just making it up. It's fictional. He's like, oh, it was just a lie. I was like, oh, I, I can hear her in the background. <laughs> it's your wife who won't let you tell the story. So yeah, it's there's always that fear of... You know, you, I tell everyone change the names of other characters in the in the story. But you know, another thing that's happening is Risk has been around since two thousand nine. So I'll listen now to stories I told in the first couple of years and be like, "Whoa, is that politically incorrect that I said that now?" You know what I mean? And uh, I have that like Francis Coppola desire to like go back and like change it. Um, but you know, you should kind of let it be. Kevin, one of the, the privileges of being a Gentile of the Week is that as the final question, you get to pose a, a question to the Jews and, and ask us, is there, because we are an internationally recognized panel of Jewish experts. We've, the, the word is cabal. We've been, cabal, that's right. We've been certified by the, the bankers. And <laughs> um, is there anything that we can tell you? My question that I had in mind was, um, you know, I have started getting into secular Buddhism. And so I, w the way that expresses itself is buying a lot of audiobooks <laughs> uh, and listening to like some of the Dharma talks that are on, uh, on the podcasts out there. And it was so funny because at a certain point I was like, oh, I love the lilting sound of these Buddhist teachers' voices. What is that? Is that a Buddhist thing? And then I realized, oh no, that's a Jewish thing. These guys all kind of sound like rabbis. And then a friend was like, oh yeah, you didn't know that like Yoda in Empire Strikes Back is kind of like a Jewish, you know, a, a Buddhist teacher. I was like, oh yeah, so what's the you deal? You say Yoda's Jewish? Yeah, that, 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 that like some people- There was a missing step there in that sort of like- Some people believe that Yoda was, was based on- was, was a Jew yeah, okay, Exactly, exactly. So you're wondering why are, why are there so many Jews? Why are so many uh, Jews Bose. also Buddhists? Yeah. Liel, do you have you've tried every spiritual path, Liel? So have you have you been? <laughs> I have, I've tried many. You've done TN, <laughs> so you've done many. transcendental meditation, Kabbalah. A bag full of. Have you gone Jubu at any point? Uh, I mean, I can give you the true answer, but no, the, the Liel answer uh, might be am, truer in a sense. My answer would be no, but it would also be the the direct. I think attempt at, at answering the question. I haven't because I really like being Jewish. I think there are, there are a lot among us who also really like being Jewish but don't really love Judaism per se, which feels a little bit weird and repressive and filled with all kinds of rules and maybe you're not into it and maybe you see it as some sort of weird guy with you know locks and you know kind of weird beard. And so you're looking for something that's spiritual and permissible and this with its uh, direct absence of God 
is a really comfortable kind of way to not be that person's like, I'm not religious but spiritual. Right. Which to me means that, you know, you don't understand what either of these things mean. Uh, but you really have some sort of serious pursuit that in a weird kind of roundabout way also lets you grapple with a lot of the theological issues of Judaism, but without calling it that because then that's weird. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, it's kind of a, a profound uh, anti-neurosis therapy. Oh, yeah. That you don't have to hang on the rabbi who you felt instilled some of those neuroses in you. But there's actually another there's, there's actually another reason. My friend Emily Sigalow, who's, who's written a book that's coming out on the origins of the Jubu phenomenon, <laughs> discovered... By the way, it's not even... It's J-U-B-U, right? J-U-B-U. It's not even J-E-W-B-U. Because, because Roger Kamenetz in The Jew and the Lotus coined the term Jubu, and he spelled it J-U-B-U. And Emily has discovered there was actually like a secret meeting, not secret, but we might as well think of it that way, in the early 70s. And I think it was people, I'm getting some of this wrong, like Sharon Salzberg and John Kabat-Zinn and Bernie Glassman, who basically got together and said, how do we sell Eastern, you know, what's an Asian spirituality or an Asian philosophy to these, all these American Jews seem interested. So it was kind of rebranded as mindfulness and meditation. And they wrote books and they started doing retreats and they basically rebranded it as American mindfulness. Interesting. So there was actually a plot. <laughs> and if you want the, 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 the scholarly correct version of that, Emily's book is coming out. But that's kind of the essence is that they really did think it was a bunch of Jewish teachers who said, how can we work this Jewish market in a way that doesn't freak them out with too much of the Oriental And there's stuff. so much built in, you know, compatibility here. You know, the whole month of Elul, for example, the whole month before the high holidays, you're literally commanded to meditate and sort of like think through your, your sins and, and do kind of, if I made the original mindfulness mm -hmm. of really trying to, to get to the bottom of your behavior and how to change yourself before, you know, Yom Kippur. So these things are not uh, necessarily mutually exclusive. And, you know, it's cool. But Why here's not? our question. Will you come back on our podcast when it's just in the little studio and tell us about your Buddhist journey as it goes along? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. And, and we'll tell you about ours. That's right. fabulous. <laughs> Kevin Allison, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you. Let's see. Before, as you know, before we conclude the show, we always do some Mazel Tovs, and I'm curious. I want to oh. give my Mazel Tov to someone else. You want to let someone else? Yeah, give I want to. Yes, yes. I want to. What's the word? Seed my Mazel Tov. Seed your Mazel Tov. Yeah. To, no one in particular. Just Josh with the microphone. Yeah. Like, I want to hear from you guys. It's a great idea. Is anyone in the I audience? I will. How about this? I'll say my Mazel Tov is for the crowd tonight at the Mandel JCC, and I want you guys to give your Mazel Tovs. Who here has a Mazel Tov you'd like to give to anyone for anything? Yeah, just brag. Yeah, tell us who you are, give us a Mazel Hi, I'm Harvey Saus. Uh, transplanted to Cleveland, three grown children spread around the country who are now jealous as could be that they're not here tonight. <laughs> uh, but one of them, her name is Rabbi Paula Rose, and she's in Seattle. And when she was finishing uh, rabbinical school, We've talked her about brother, her. Yes. Ben Sass, uh, called into you. You wished her luck when she was going out there for her interview. She subsequently got the job and is gamefully employed now for a year and a half. So let's say Mazel Tov to Rabbi Rose. We met her, right? We did a live. We did like a, a live stream. What's that thing called? Uh, we did a listener party. A listener party, and On we the met. Web. Rabbi Paula Rose. But I hope she knows we're going to be in Seattle February 2nd. So and I'm sure she's she has to bring back. her entire shul. <laughs> and I'm sure she will. And now that I called her out, I do also have to give a shout out to her brother, Benjamin Sass, and his wife, Eliza, in Philadelphia. 
and younger sister Monica Sass in St. Louis. We should be clear that when you talk about your son Ben Sass, it's not the senator from Nebraska Ben Sass. <laughs> that you is actually, absolute. your last name is S A S S, right? That is correct. So he's come along, put an E on his name, and irrevocably effed up your son's life for a little bit. That's while. correct and as well. More specifically, his Google rankings. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Thanks. Thank you. That's awesome. Anyone else have a Mazel Tov to give? More. 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 Back there. Back there. Back there. Hi, my name is Blair Gornberg. I'm from Chicago originally. Moved to Cleveland in July, so I guess I'm a Clevelander now. Um, thank you. You can make the jokes. <laughs> I don't know any yet, but I'll work on it. Uh, my mazel of the week goes to my roommate who ran the Disney Half Marathon yesterday, and her birthday is on Friday, so oh. Shelby Camera, that's for you. Wait, there's a half marathon that competes with the New York Marathon? That's some bad timing. The New York Marathon was yesterday. Well, give it her. But it's in Disney. Well, I understand. I'm yeah. Who it's else? Great. Anyone else? Maybe two more? Are there two more people who want to give Mazel Tov? you're to, so shy. To anyone? No at grandkids? All? Like. Birthdays. Here we go. We have one right here. Graduation. Our birthday girl. Um, uh, Mazel Tov to Isaac and Yael on their new baby, of who you know, um, in Baltimore. Yeah. Gertman and Shinar. Yael Shinar. Eileen Gertman. Oh my God, are you Isaac's mother? Yes. Mazel tov. I, I, I had Rosh Hashanah dinner at your house a couple years ago. Oh, that's too. right, you did. Oh, that's good right. to see you again. And, and so a, ma a mazel tov to them, but also we used the same mohelet that you did, Emily Blake. She was wonderful. Isn't Emily the best moil in the world? Unbelievable. She's unbelievable. Did the baby not even wake up? No, didn't wake up. No, she it shows you, by the way. And she quoted Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. I mean. In the naming. It shows you what type of horrible people we are that to uh, Mark's son's bris, we actually secretly recorded the whole thing, thinking we would use it for an episode. And I just can't believe me out. That is a horrible, horrible thing. You didn't to do. tell us this sooner. You've been sitting here this whole time. You've been to his house. She for was Rosh waiting Hashanah. to see if I recognized her, and I apologize <laughs> that I didn't. But that's right. You were at my house for Rosh Hashanah, and. Um, so I have to say that her son and daughter-in-law, Isaac and Yale, were at our shul for the past, was it a, what, two years? Was it only a year? And they became these incredibly close friends, and then they moved to Baltimore. And we're like, we're completely hard, and had a baby, and we're so heartbroken, and mazel tov on the baby and everything. So good to see you. Wow. Can anyone beat that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we have one over here, here Josh. Hi. Hi. Oh, this is loud. My name is Orly. Um, I'm a senior in high school, and my mazel tov is to my friends who already got into college. Hey, so, yeah. mazel tov. Mazel tov. Well, we are not going to top those, but Liel, do you have I a mazel tov this week? That is great. I, I don't have a mazel tov either, but I also am going to hand off to someone. I got, I got this email in from somebody who really hoped for a shout out. <clears throat> A woman named Allie writes, she says, my husband Carl and I are recent newlyweds, married October 14th, currently living in Columbus, Ohio. We both enjoy listening to the podcast every week, and we're very excited to hear that you were doing a live show in Cleveland. We had been planning on buying tickets to the show last week, but Sunday, Carl's grandfather, also known as Zadie, died at the age of 94. With all of the traveling to Maryland, our home state, for our wedding and the funeral, we knew we weren't going to be able to travel again to Cleveland for the show. If you could give a shout out to Carl during the live show, I know it would make his day. We can't wait to listen to the recorded live show and hope to see you all in person sometime soon. Thank you, Allie. So Allie, mazel tov on the wedding, first of all. Amazing, congratulations. And we're so sorry for the loss. And a big shout out and mazel tov to your husband, Carl. We miss you. What we hereby promise 
and Nancy from the JCC is here to keep us honest on this, is that when you guys have us back to Cleveland, Allie and Carl are getting free tickets, okay? <laughs> and they're each getting up. They can bring their parents. They're getting like six. There are six free tickets for the Allie and Carl community. They can bring their dog, the child they may have had by then. They can bring anyone they want to this building. All right. It's been wonderful to have you. We hope you'll stay in. Are there, is there like food at the back? You guys are feeding wow. us afterwards. This is God nosh. bless Cleveland. This has been a wonderful, honestly, from from Harley Cohen in the United Airline jet propeller prop plane <laughs> to Jacks to the okay. Bagels backstage to all of you. It's been a wonderful trip. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Big thanks this week to the Mandel JCC of Cleveland. Yay! You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and putting newsletter in the subject line. We often come to you live, like tonight. To book us or to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. And of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox. Hit up the website bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and stickers, as well as coffee cozies with which to surround your caffeinated beverages. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our our Facebook group for debates about things like whether Jews prefer aluminum foil or saran wrap. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, Shira Tolushkin, and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steinert Evoy. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by rabbis Josh Scoff and Scott Rowland. Yeah! <laughs> And big thanks as well to the home that always has to take us back when we come knocking, Argo Studios in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. Shalom, friends. Shalom.